So we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 10, but um, we're going to do a little bit of leg work before we get there. I just, uh, I have you guys know, um, and I don't bring it up very often, but I make it a point to not really know what songs Faith's going to sing. Every once in a while, I'll overhear her practicing or she'll talk to me about it because some cool revelation that she has about the songs that she's singing, but I make it an active point not to know. Um, just like she makes it an active point not to know what I'm going to preach on. Just that way, it's not like we intentionally make the songs reflect the message or vice versa. That way, it's each its own thing. And if they work together and they flow together on days like today, it just is a beautiful message that God is setting up to design to penetrate your hearts. And so, with that being said, these songs, they all had one theme. Amazing grace, reckless love, oh how He loves. You can see that it's all about the love and the grace of God. And that's the drive this morning. And because we had so much preparation for the festival, I wanted to get everything done. And usually how I prepare is I don't sit in my office for hours on end praying and studying I'm not as, I don't know what the word is, I'm not as haughty as that, I guess. Usually what I do is I just meditate on what God's kind of put on my heart. I make like a brief outline and then throughout the week I just pray over it and I'll write stuff in pen off to the side. But I really wanted to have that outline done because I didn't know if I'd have a chance to get in my office the rest of the week. So last Sunday I came to church early before evening service and I just was sitting in that chair and I was just like, God, I just preached. We ended a series. I have no idea what direction to go with moving forward. I don't know if we're going to have some new people that come to the festival that may come for the first time the Sunday, the very next day following. So what do I preach? And this thought came in my mind. If I had one message, one opportunity to speak something to somebody that they might come into this church and never come back, what would that message be? And so as I sat there and I talked to God and I was just like, what would that be? Because that might be their opinion for the rest of their life about this church. If they never come back, they might be in Walmart and bump into somebody and get in a conversation and this church come up and they say, oh yeah, that church, I went there and this is what they preach. That's what this church stands for or that's what this church stands against. And that would be our identity in one person's heart that could convey to who, know how, who knows how many people in their sphere of influence. So the question is, what is this church about? What is the one thing, the one message that I want this church to be about? And there's obviously, and the first outline that I did that I tossed was all about Jesus. Because that's really what we're all about. We're all about Jesus. Plus or minus nothing. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The Alliance, the group, global family that we're a part of, we say have this saying that George Partington said that from the beginning of our movement, it's been not so much the spirit of our movement to preach doctrine, but to preach the man, Christ Jesus. And that is my heart. That's actually what attracted me to the Alliance so heavily is that all about the person of Jesus. But it just didn't sit right. So I just kept, I just kept seeking. I just kept praying. I just kept asking. And this thought came into my mind, draw near. And it actually stemmed off a conversation that I had a couple hours earlier, Faith and I had with Miss Di, going through the veil, going inside the veil, drawing near to God. And how do we do that? And so, as I began to look at this, it kind of unfolded into two separate aspects, two separate parts. And the one part 
is the preparation that God's made, and the second part is the preparation you have to make. And so we're going to do a brief series, two messages, one this Sunday and one next Sunday. And this Sunday is going to be about the grace of God. The love and the grace of God is what the message is on drawing near. What God has done. What God has done. Because see, you might not know this if you haven't been in Christianity very long, if you haven't been in church very long, or even if you have been in church a long time, you might just take it as a catchphrase and take the phrase for granted. But you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do, be good enough. You cannot do enough works. You cannot make this happen on your own. You can't. And we take that as such a motif, such a statement, such a catchphrase that sometimes we really lose the emphasis of what that means. You cannot please God on your own. Can't do it. If it was not for Christ Jesus, we would all be condemned to go to hell. Every one of us. That popular verse that we say on Sunday night evangelism training over and over and over again. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no man that seeks God, no, not one. Everyone's went after their own way. Constantly, over and over and over again, the Bible makes this one thing perfectly clear. You are not good enough. You're not good enough. But God. But God. God loved us. Not because there was anything inside of us for Him to love. Not because he looked down and he's like, man, those people are pretty valuable. You know, like there's like a diamond in the rough there. If I just get it out and clean them up a little bit, they'll be pristine. It wasn't that. God looked inside himself, found mercy and grace and love, and looked at a people that were worthy of damnation. I know that's a horrible word. Worthy of damnation. Worthy of eternal punishment. Worthy to be cast in hell in outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where there's screaming day in and day out forever and ever cast away from the love of God and experiencing nothing but wrath and fury and torment. But He looked at that people and He looked at His own mercy and His own love, so He decided that He was going to set up a way for us to come near to Him. And that's what the message is going to be about this morning. The work that He did so that we might draw near to Him. This isn't a condemnation message. This isn't a beat them up drag them out message. This is a love message. But I'm laying this out because you need to know the darkness that was there, the night sky, the pitch blackness of our ho hopeless condition so that when you see the light of Jesus shining through, it's ever brighter because it's cast against the black disparity of our soul before He came in and moved on us. There was nothing good in us. It wasn't like we were a light, but we were a dim light. Or we were like a headlight, and it was just some smokiness going over, so it wasn't shining as bright as it should, and God just needed to take it off and clean us up a little bit. It wasn't anything like that. It was that we had no light. We had no light bulb. We had nothing. We were darkness. We were black. We were hopeless. And God decided that He was going to take us and make for Himself a people and change us into new creatures, into new creation. All right, we're going to be in Luke 10, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, or the King James might say Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. The reason I chose this story is because it has one person contrasted with another person. You have one person who's running around. They've got men in their house, cultural men sit down. They put their feet up. They have their feet washed. The women are running around making all the food, getting all the preparations ready so that they can serve the men and the men can eat and then the women will eat after. And it's a whole man patriarchal society where the men are honored and the women are supposed to be doing all the work. And you've got this one woman who's trying to honor and fulfill the system that's set up in front of her. And the other woman says, no, I'm going to ignore the system and I'm going to go sit at the Master's feet. There's something about Jesus that's different. And I think that what He has to offer me is of infinite more value than what this system has set up. And see, God gave the Jews a law on Mount Sinai. And we reference the Ten Commandments, but there's actually 613 laws that were given and they fulfilled their whole society. They built their framework of their civilization around this law and they held it. They put it in necklaces on their necks. They put it on their doorposts. They taught their children. They recited it. A child was supposed to know the book of Leviticus by the age of six and supposed to know the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch by the age of 12 and supposed to be able to quote it so that they could potentially enter the priesthood. And that was like the pinnacle of parenting is if your child knew the first five books of the Bible by the age of 12 and they could become a disciple or a student underneath a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a religious teacher of the law and then they could be brought up and potentially become a priest themselves. That was like it. That's like what you wanted to happen. It was all built around this system. And the system was great on the outside. But Jesus looking at the Pharisees and some people that were fulfilling this system says you're whited sepulchers, you're whited tombs, you're pretty on the outside but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. And I heard Faith preach an awesome message on this that it said dead men's bones, not a dead man's bone. So it wasn't talking about their own deadness on the inside. It was talking about the deadness on the inside affecting other people, plural, and that they were being the product or the reciprocator of death, even though they looked pretty on the outside. The point I'm saying is this. Our system, if it is limited to a system, while it may look pretty on the outside, could be death on the inside. And we could be producing death by our system. Christianity is not supposed to be just a system. And I want this to be very clear because we just finished the series on the requirements of Christianity. On things that a Christian is supposed to do to affirm the fact that they are a Christian. But it has to be noted that that cannot become a new law to us. That cannot become, okay, well, if I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, check mark, I'm a Christian. No, it's not working to be something. It's being something and the works are produced automatically because you are that something. And we have such a tendency to turn everything into a law or into an idol. That's like the human condition. We turn, if we have a great preacher, we turn him into an idol and we begin to worship the great preacher. They've done this countless times with televangelists and people on Tennessee or on TV. 
and some of them, a lot of them are in Tennessee. <laughs> I say that because that's where I'm from, and you would not believe. That's like the religious capital of the world. That's actually what it's called. <laughs> but I'm saying that somebody does a pretty good exposition of the Word of God. They get a pretty big following. They get on TV. They get on TBN or what used to be the Praise Hour or PTL. And they get on that. And then they get a huge following. And then they start becoming lofty themselves and saying, well, we need a statue. Or, you know, you need to sell your house and leave this stuff to us in your will because then God will bless you. And they start thinking that they are something. And we turn them into an idol. Or we turn because they say, well, you know, this is how I did it. And this is what worked for me. So then we'll turn that into a law and we'll say, okay, as long as I do this, then I'm going to receive from God. And last week I encouraged us, let's make Thursday a fasting day. But I made sure that we understood that just because we fasted, that does not mean that God's going to answer our prayer because we fasted. It does not mean that our prayer is suddenly the golden prayer because we fasted. No, fasting is simply something that deepens our prayer. It takes it from beyond just words and puts the heart emphasis and the physical realm in conjunction with the soulful realm so that it might touch the spiritual realm. That's what fasting is. It's the same thing as crying when you pray. It's deepening your prayer. It's not changing your prayer into the suddenly golden prayer that God's going to answer it no matter what. No, it's just deepening it. But we'll turn that into a law. And there's people all over the world now that will preach, well, if you fast one day a week, then you're going to be able to raise the dead. Or if you fast two days a week, then you're going to be this. Or you're going to become this. So we as humans have the ability to turn everything into an idol and into a law. And then ultimately and inevitably it becomes a stumbling block. And the Jews did this with the system God set up so that they might know how to be more like God, so that they might know how to serve God. In this system, they turned it into a system. They turned it into a law. They turned it into an idol. God gave the law. They made it their life's mantra that they could not violate, even if it meant dishonoring their parents. So they made it not just a law that they needed to adhere to, but they made it a chokehold of a law then became an idol, and then it became a stumbling block so that when the Messiah came, the whole purpose for the law, they couldn't even recognize Him. And Isaiah says, you missed your hour of visitation. And that's what I don't want for us. I don't want us to get so focused on things that we have to do to become mature Christians or get so focused on doing the outreaches or get so focused on doing the works that we miss the whole point I evangelize. That is one of my favorite things to do. I love missions. And I love sitting beside missionaries, particularly old missionaries who've been out in the field for 20 and 30, sometimes 40 and 50 years, and just listening to their stories. Because let me tell you something, God moves in foreign countries where they can tell you stories about where they're face-to-face -face with a witch doctor and they're like, God has to move or I'm getting speared. Literally, the witch doctor has had other missionaries' heads on spears and they literally have to see a miracle and a move of God or else their head's going to be on the spear right next to it. I've heard these stories from missionaries and I know that they're true because their faith is no longer just an abstract idea that goes good in conjunction with their life. Their faith literally has become everything. And it's not about a system. One thing that missionaries will tell you is there's no 2 plus 2 system that works on every mission field. 
if you go to Africa and something works there, just because you take that same system and you go to Europe, it's not going to work the same. Because we cannot let our systems or our way of doing things become an idol, become a law, become a stumbling block. But we do that so much. And Mary in this story, I'm sorry, Martha in this story, that's exactly what she did. There was a system set up. And it was, in a sense, a good system. What she was trying to do was a good thing. She had men come into her house and she, with her cultural understanding, where she was at in her life, was trying to do good to those men that had come to her house. One of them being a teacher a well-respected teacher because this is in the part of Jesus' ministry where thousands were coming to Him all over the place. This wasn't in the rejection stage of His ministry. A well-respected teacher already identified as a prophet comes into her house and she's trying to serve Him. She's trying to do good by her system. She's trying to do good, but her good gets in the way of great. Her good gets away in the way of the better part. It gets in the way of really drawing near to Jesus because she's trying to earn something. She's trying to get something by her works. And see, the thing that's been on my mind, I loved our outreach yesterday. I had a wonderful time. The kids had a great time. Man, when we got them home and got them bathed, man, they, we laid them down in bed and didn't hear another peep. I mean, they were, they played hard and it was wonderful. Slept in a little bit this morning. I was like, yes, let's do this every week. <laughs> but they had a great time. Faith and I had a great time. I know I've talked to several of you. Everybody was so thrilled with the outreach yesterday and how that went. But the thing that's been irking me on the inside a little bit is not about the outreach specifically, but a lot about something that's trying to creep in the back of my mind. It's trying to rise up in the back of my mind about the outreach is... God, we had an outreach. We had several hundred people filter through. So our church is going to grow now. And I, I, I can feel it creeping up in the back of my mind, almost like this two plus two system trying to get there. We did the outreach. We did the work. We did the prayer. So now our church is just going to grow at the snap of a finger. And it's irking me a little bit because it's trying to take over as the focus and it's something that I'm having to like hold off against. That's not the reason that we did that. I want church growth. I want this church to grow. We have now have 95 seats in the sanctuary. I want every one of them to be filled. But if I ever let that get in the way of the good part, of the better part, of the main thing, then I've lost. I've lost. And I don't want that to happen to me, and I don't want that to happen to you. <laughs> I want this to be a drive that everything that we're doing, we're not doing so that we can have a big church, so that we can start knocking walls out, so that we can fit hundreds of people in here, so that we can go to multiple services, so that we can look at another building project, so that we can change the community. Oh, that's great. And I want every bit of it. But the reason we're doing this is so that God gets glorified. So that we draw near to Jesus. And if it ever becomes anything else, then we've lost. I don't care if we have a thousand people and we build a sanctuary that can seat 5,000 and it's full packed to the gills and we're, we're on national television and we've got our own channel and our own little network and all that great stuff. I don't care. If we've missed the main thing, 
then we're Martha in the story and not Mary. And we're getting the work done because I'm sure I've seen some women do some work. And I'm just going to tell you, men, I'm a man myself. If push comes to shove, women will outwork you. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. I've watched it on numerous occasions. And if you say, no, they won't. Okay. I dare you. We're almost at Thanksgiving. I dare you to go near the kitchen at Thanksgiving. I dare you. See if you can keep up. I'm just saying, see if you can. No, you're going to be hiding under a counter. Looking for like a rag to wipe the sweat off your brow. That's where you're going to be if you try to go in that kitchen at Thanksgiving. I'm just telling you, women can work. So I have no doubt in this story that Martha's getting it done. I have no doubt in this story that she has all the food made and now she's just like, okay, I can step away. I'm trying to get the table set. Hey, tell Mary to come set the table. Like, I have no doubt that she's getting it done because when women are frustrated, that work level goes up a notch. I'm just telling, it does. It's scary. Listen, I took the kids and I took them for a car ride and face like, just take them for a car ride, you know, go outside when you get back, just for a couple hours. Two hours. We have an 1,100 square foot home, not a super big home. Two hours. She had done every stitch of laundry, like filtered in piles, going through laundry, deep cleaned the whole house, had food made. I mean, it was like walking into a, the twilight zone at what she got accomplished in two hours. But the reason I'm saying that is because in this story, I don't think the issue was that Mary or Martha wasn't getting it done. I think the issue of this story was is that she was getting it done. But something inside of her was irked. It wasn't sitting right. I say irked a lot. I don't know if it's something wasn't jiving correctly. Something wasn't settling right. It's like when you eat something and your stomach's just not comfortable with it. Like every time I have McDonald's, it's just something doesn't sit right. But it's not in just in your gut, it's in your heart. Something just isn't okay. It's like when you have a conversation with somebody that you know really, really well, and the conversation's fine, and no words are said that are out of the ordinary, but you can just tell that something isn't okay because you know the person. And I think the point of this story is, is that Martha was getting it done. She was getting it accomplished. She was having everything done, but something inside of her just wasn't okay. And the only thing in the natural that she could see was Mary's not helping. So she points to the natural thing and says, hey, will you tell Mary to help? Thinking that that's going to make what's inside unsettled get settled. But that's not what happened. What happened was is Jesus looked at her and immediately identified what was unsettled and told her how to get it settled right. And so often we are trying to make things happen by doing the work. And I want the things to happen and I believe that we are responsible and have to give our due diligence. But we cannot believe that our due diligence is ever going to be enough. We cannot believe that our due diligence is ever going to get it accomplished. We have to understand that Jesus has already accomplished it. And now if we'll allow Him to accomplish it in us, then we can work from the accomplished position. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Done. He didn't say, hey, it's partly done, guys. Now you go finish it. He said, it's finished. Turn to Hebrews 10. Verse 19. I've got three points I want to go through pretty quickly. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, this word actually means brothers, sisters. It can be either one, either or, and both. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, assurance, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the definite article, the new and living way, not one of many new and living, no, the single new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Alright, here's what I want you guys to understand out of this. The point that I want you to pick. He says, through the veil, through the curtain, that is His flesh. See, there's some things that were limiting us and making us unable to draw near to God. That our works would never do it. Our works would never accomplish it. So in the work of Jesus, these things that were preventing us from drawing near to God, Jesus came in and dealt with them. The first one is the flesh. Romans 8 says this. It says that He was made sin. And because He was made sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Or condemned sin in the flesh, yes. So He dealt with the flesh issue. Our flesh in the garden when the fall happened was cursed. God cursed the ground. We were made from the ground. We are a product of the curse. Adam and Eve were cursed by the fall. Jesus, knowing that the flesh was cursed, dealt with that issue when He offered His own flesh up. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the first issue that was holding us back is in our flesh we could not approach God because our flesh was cursed. But Galatians 3.13 says that He became a curse. It actually says we are freed from the curse because He became a curse as it is written Every cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. He hung on the cross. He became a curse. He condemned the curse. And therefore, our flesh is no longer cursed. Does that make sense? So now, because our flesh is no longer cursed, the first hindrance or barricade that was preventing us from drawing near to God was dealt with. His flesh was torn. Therefore, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. Therefore, we can draw in near to God because He dealt with the curse with the issue of the flesh that was holding us back. See, I want you guys to understand that out of these things that were holding us back, Jesus dealt with them so that you might draw near to Him. Amen? Jesus dealt with them so you might draw near to Him. So the first thing that was holding us back was the flesh. That's done away with in Christ. The second thing that was holding us back was sin and enmity with God. And this one I want to... I've got this verse right here, so I'm going to just reference it from this. It's Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses or sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses or sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Hang on a second. Let me put this in a perspective that's easy to understand. Everybody in here that's ever been alive for longer than 18 years, you've got some medical bills somewhere. Everybody does. And they may have already been dealt with because they were minor. Everybody's got some med medical bills. Imagine a loan company just calls you up and says, hey, the whole realm of medical bills that you have against your name, we just canceled them. You don't owe nothing. Yeah, glory. Imagine... Imagine the 
feeling inside and the joy that would like I don't have any more medical debt that's done just car debt house debt somebody calls you and says hey every dollar that you have against your name every ounce of debt you have yeah Jesus I, choose me choose me right here I volunteer <laughs> I'll be an example <laughs> that's right yeah credit card debt all of it every debt every dollar every dime that you owe to anyone Somebody just calls you and says, hey, this is so-and-so with this loan company. We've just decided to pick you. Every dollar that you have in debt, we're just going to pay it off. It's completely cleared. The whole record of debt is completely canceled. That would be a glorious day. That would be a glorious day. This is what Jesus did because every single sin inquired a moral debt against us, right. uh, from us against God. And Jesus just canceled it. All the debt you had was canceled. All the enmity that was there was canceled. Everything. Sin it was dealt with at the cross. That's why he said it is finished. The word he says it is finished is tetele. I don't know. It's a Greek word that's fancy that I can't pronounce. The word actually means it is finished or it is paid in full. So when Jesus died on the cross, he said it's paid in full. It's done. The debt is paid. That's a great thing because our sin, God can't even look upon sin. Can't even look upon iniquity. We had no chance of drawing near to Him because He wouldn't have us. The very holiness of His presence would have struck us dead if we came into His presence with sin. Don't believe me? Read the Old Testament. It shows numerous people trying to get near to holy possessions that God has touched and being struck dead by it. There was an entire plague that broke out on the children of Israel because they had an unholy thing in the camp. God is holy. Sin could not be in His presence. So that was barring the way for us to draw near to God and Jesus dealt with it. He dealt with the flesh and He dealt with the sin. He dealt with the enmity and He paid the debt. The last thing, this is Ephesians 2, 11-13. We were outside the covenant of God. He made the covenant with the children of Israel, the sons of Abraham. And you had a whole long process to go through to become a proselyte, to become an Israeli, so that you could be inside the covenant with God. But Ephesians 2 verse 11 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles were ungodly or outside the covenant of Israel in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world and that's a tough having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ the barricade was broken down. The wall, the partition that held us, separated us from the covenant of God was annihilated. It was destroyed. It was buried. There is no longer a barricade. It doesn't matter what people group you're from, what ethnicity you are, what race you are. This is not a white religion. This is not a black religion. It's not a Vietnamese religion. It's not a religion for a specific people group, period. It's not. End of discussion. Amen. This is a religion, a belief a faith for all peoples of all ethnics everywhere. Period. End of discussion. Christ Jesus died for all men. And by men I mean He died for all men, women, and children. 
of all time. None of this limited atonement stuff that He only selected a few people and then died for those few people. No, He died for all people all time. Everywhere, everyone, everywhere. And He did that so that everyone everywhere would have the opportunity or the ability to draw near. So I'm going to tell you guys a story. It's in Luke 15. I'm not going to go there. This is how we're going to wrap it up. So you've got the one story that we just looked at in Luke 10. You've got Martha and Mary, and they're contrasted. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus knowing that there's something better than the system that she had. The system was fine. There was nothing wrong with the system from the natural, but it was missing something. It was a hollow system. And then Jesus comes in, so she sits at His feet and disregards the system so that she can learn from the Master. Martha is trying to do good by her works, so she's over here and she's trying to honor the system. She's trying to fulfill the system and by her works accomplish something, maybe hoping at the end of this all she'll get a head nod from Jesus saying, you did a great job. Maybe the reason that she spoke to Jesus was so that Jesus would suddenly be aware that Mary's sitting here while Martha's doing all the work so that He'll rebuke Mary and commend Martha. Or maybe she's just tired. Have you ever been just tired? Just tired of where you're at? Just tired of every day looking like the day before? Just tired of doing the same old job for the same old pay for the same old length of time? Just tired. Physically tired, spiritually tired, mentally tired, emotionally drained, just exhausted. Sometimes people just get tired. And I think that the solution to that tiredness is that, yes, you're going to do work and you're going to get tired in your body. Yes, you're going to have days where there's just so much and you're going to be tired in your mind. But there is a rest that goes beyond every other rest. Jesus says it this way. He says, To all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to Me and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's a rest in Jesus that we can get to. That we can attain. And it's the rest and it's mind-boggling because it's like the circumstances on the outside don't change, but the person in the circumstances does change. So now therefore the person can change the circumstances by the change that's been done in them. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this rest. So now back to the story. You've got Martha and she's upset. She's irked on the inside because her system isn't doing it for her. Her law isn't doing it for her. Her idols aren't doing it for her anymore. Now, she's looking at Mary and Mary's happy sitting on the floor by Jesus and Jesus is ignoring the fact that Mary's not helping. So she wants Mary to get rebuked and wants herself to be commended for fulfilling the system. But the problem is, is that the system could never get you as close to God as you thought it could. The problem is that the law couldn't do it. The problem is, is that we can't fulfill the law to make it do it. Paul says if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. If the law was able to do it, then there was no reason for Christ to die, so it was a waste. But none of that stuff could do it. Mary realized that there's something here. There's a good portion. There's a good part. There's something that I just got to get a hold of. And she was going to sit at the feet of Jesus until she got a hold of it. And a lot of people believe that there's later in the story or in the life of Jesus, He's sitting at the feet talking to some religious leaders and a woman comes in completely distraught and she breaks a, a jar of ointment that's the most precious thing that she owns and she literally pours it on the feet of Jesus and takes the hair of her head and washes His feet with her tears, with the oil, and with her hair. She, doesn't use a t she uses her hair 
Ladies, I know how much money some of y'all spend on y'all's hair. Take your hair and wash somebody's feet. Feet where they walked with sandals in the streets, where they didn't have cars. It was livestock pulling cartons. So there's dung and dirt and nastiness and they didn't have a sewage system so can you imagine what's on this person's feet and she's going to take the hair of her head and wash his feet with her tears and with the most precious thing that she owned in the natural so not only did she sacrifice her dignity but she sacrificed her possessions she sacrificed everything just to come in here into this person's house simon's house to wash a man's feet with her hair and Jesus says, her story is going to be told for the rest of the world. Wherever this gospel goes, her story is going to go because of what she did. She gave all. And then he t looks at the religious leader who also was fulfilling a system and rebukes him and says, you ain't done nothing for me since I got here. And she come in and she's given everything. Another story, they're sitting in the temple and people are bringing all this money and making a show of their public offering to the temple like, oh, we've given this... You know, we've given $200. We've given $2,000. And then this woman comes in with a widow's mite, which is the equivalent of a penny, and she drops it in. And Jesus points her out and says, look, she's better. Why is she better? She gave way less than what everybody else gave on the outside. But on the inside, that's the only thing she had. She gave it all so that she might get it all. And I'm sick and tired, and I didn't mean for this to go this route, but I'm sick and tired of us looking at the outward circumstances saying that if we do good on a festival, then God's going to move and our church is going to be filled the next day. And I'm rebuking myself for that because I allowed that thought to try and creep up a little bit. I'm sick and tired of us saying that if we give this amount, dollar amount, doesn't matter what the percentage is, if we give this dollar amount, then we're going to get something in return. Or if we fast this much, and we're trying to turn God into a mathematical equation. Two plus two equals four, and God's the four. So if we can do the two, and we can do the two, then we get the four. No, God's not a mathematical equation. He's not a robot that you type into a computer and it's beep, 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 beep. Okay, this is your result. That's not God. He has a mind of His own. He is sovereign above everyone. And He does what He wants to. I'm sick and tired of us, this argument over free will versus predestination, and we want to give everyone free will but God. I'm sick and tired of us turning Christianity, which is supposed to be something so inward and so spiritual and so other than, so not of this world, and we turn it into a calculated, cold, natural, programmed thing. And that's not what it's about. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. The person. The man. The God. The Spirit. The one and only. And our charge is to draw near to Him no matter the cost. Jesus encouraged us and says, no matter what you give up, no one gives up houses or homes or vehicles or friends or family or nothing that He doesn't receive ten hundredfold in the kingdom. But he actually says in this life and in the life to come. Miss Dyes told me several stories about times where she gave it all. Did God ever let you down? Never. We sold everything that we had to come here and Faith and I constantly have this conversation. We've never been happier. God is moving so wonderfully. But if we get caught up in the nickels and the noses and the number of people in the seats... We get caught up in stuff like that. I want to see growth. I want to see the seats full. And I'll talk about it and I'll get excited about it. But if that becomes the main thing, I've lost. If that becomes the main thing for you, you've lost.
I just want to draw near to Jesus and I want everyone to fall passionately in love with Jesus. Passionately in love. Passionately in love. Now think about this story and I'm going to use this to close. The prodigal son. Everybody's heard this story. Luke 15. Prodigal son. Man had two sons. The youngest son comes to him and says, Look, give me my inheritance. Basically, his inheritance is what he gets when the father's dead. So he's like, Look, you're dead to me. Give me my money. Right? And then he takes that money. The man, the father, divides the inheritance equally among his sons, give him what's their, their, their due. And then the youngest son takes it and goes into a foreign country, squanders it on riotous living, partying, you know, the whole nine. You can use your imagination to fill in what that righteous living is squanders it all, gets into a pig pen, and he gets to the point where he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's not a good place to be. Literally wants to eat what the pigs are eating. And then he thinks to himself, the servants in my father's house eat better than I do, so I'll just go home and ask my father to be a servant, to be a worker, right? And so he goes back home, and while he's a long way off, his father becomes a little undignified, girds up his loins, Runs. That's not something a patriarch does. Runs to meet his son. Puts a new robe on him. Puts a ring on his finger. Puts new shoes on his feet. You know, the whole nine. Get the best calf we got in the field. The fatted calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate my son who was lost is now home. Right? A couple things here. The son was still a long way off. God came to him. We were a long way off. God came to us. He knocked down all the things, the flesh, the sin, the enmity, the covenant barriers, knocked all that down so that we might come to Him. All we've got to do is take a step and He'll take ten. God wants relationship with us. Runs to Him. But the point that I'm getting at is while the feast is going on, the older son hears it and gets mad and refuses to go inside because he realizes that the feast is about his brother coming home. The father comes out and the son starts accusing him. I've been here the whole time doing everything you've asked, serving, da-da-da-da, and you've never so much as gave me a goat to have with my kids, which is a lie because he split the inheritance equally among them. But still, you've never even done anything for me. And I've been fulfilling the rules. I've been honoring the system. I've been doing the law. Come on, are you getting it? He's mad because he's doing the works. He's fulfilling the system. He's honoring the law. Just like Martha was mad. But the prodigal son came to a revelation. His father house had better to offer. So he came back. Mary came to a revelation. The master has better to offer. So she sat at his feet. Systems work to accomplish natural things. Systems work to draw a crowd. You give away free stuff, people are going to come for the free stuff. But when the free stuff is gone, the people are gone. Festivals do great. They draw people in. They let people know this is a church. And we had a great time. And so, I am so happy everyone was blessed. But when we start looking at the systems and we start looking at the natural things and we make them a law and then we make that law an idol and then that idol becomes a stumbling block and then we're nowhere near the presence of God because we have not entered into the veil that Christ opened the way for us to. We have no intimacy with God. We have missed it. So here's the challenge. You can play a little bit of music and we're going to close out. Here's the challenge. Don't be the prodigal son's older brother that complains, that thinks that the system should get him what he wants. Don't be Martha who thinks that if she honors the system, she should get what he wants. Here's the call. 
If you want prayer, we'll have prayer. But as we close out in prayer, here's the call. Stop trying to please God naturally. Start trying to please God spiritually because it says this. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why I married her. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but without faith, it is impossible to please God. <laughs> but he who comes to God must first believe that He is, and secondly, must believe that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. you got to believe in God. Then you got to believe that if you're going after the good part, you're going to get the good part. Right? So we're going to close out in prayer. If you need prayer, I'll pray for you. But if not, I want you to pray to God. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be authentic. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am sick and I'm tired of natural mundane efforts to try and appease the Almighty God. I'm sick of everyone, myself included, trying to turn you into a math equation. I'm sick of us trying to just do Christianity in the natural. God, I want something deeper. I want something more. I want to see the power of God so manifested in people's lives individually that they have let's call them closet revivals, that their prayer closet, that their own time becomes a revival in them, becomes a burning fire, that when we come together corporately, it becomes something wonderful. And we see things here that we've never seen in churches before. Lord, it says that You did strange and crazy miracles by the hand of Paul. Lord, I would think every miracle is crazy, but You did specific strange and crazy miracles by the hand of Paul. Lord, I want to see that here because it goes beyond a system and it becomes into something that can't be programmed. God, you can't program a miracle. You can't program a divine, sovereign God. God, I want to see something miraculous happen in everyone's lives. And I want to see something miraculous happen in this house. And God, as we go our separate ways today, Lord, I want the theme that rests heavy on everyone's heart is, is my Christianity a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones? Or is my Christianity, is my relationship with God even better on the inside than what it appears on the outside? Is it a whited sepulcher filled with hordes of gold? Or is it a whited sepulcher filled with dead men's bones? God, let's do some self-reflection. Let's try to get deeper. The Alliance is famous for the deeper life that Simpson put forth. Lord, I want this church to, to get deeper. Let's dig our heels in and let's dig deeper into Christianity. In Jesus' name, amen.